Hi, I'm Creighton. I'm an alcoholic. That name is tough. It's half Irish and half Greek. I didn't know where to open a restaurant or stay drunk, you know, the rest of my life. So I want to I want to thank uh, first of all Mike for introducing me this evening. I want to thank <coughs> Donna and Russ for picking me up and the committee for having me down here. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to come down here. And I want to say a special hello to Frank G. For no particular reason, except he wanted his name on the tape, so you got it. Our egos are just wonderful, you know. Many years ago, uh, well, not, you know, drunks exaggerate. Not too many years ago. Last week, you know, many years ago, several years ago, my sponsor <coughs> said, "Before you start talking, boy." I want you to read some things. So I do this, and I do it also for a reason. Four observations of conference speakers. Number one, conference speakers are just plain drunks. No different than you, believe me. Number two, conference speakers are not special people, or more sober, or brighter, or certainly not more spiritual. They're just more eager to hear the sound of their own voice. Number three, beware of any conference speaker that you hear who sets themselves up as a guru, who holds special meetings for so-called inner circle spirituality in closed-door sessions, because I can guarantee you they are not carrying a message, but they may be spreading a disease. Number four. Watch out for any conference speaker who uses an inordinate amount of profanity. It's unimpressive, it's unacceptable, and it's not part of any AA program I'm familiar with. It's just plain bad manners. So I read those. The first time I read those, I sat down. Hell, I didn't have anything else to say. You know, that was, that was it. <coughs> One more thing. There's probably some newcomers here this evening, and this is for the newcomer. It's from Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism, from our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to admit he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into, not up to, into the gates of insanity or death. Now, that's kind of a morbid paragraph to start an AA pitch with, but, but here's the kicker. And this is the first sentence of the second paragraph on that chapter more about alcoholism. It says, We learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. If, for the newcomer, if your sponsor asks you where the first step is, you can now tell them it's in that second paragraph and feel very aloof about the whole thing, you know, as newcomers are opt to do. Well, on March the 1st of 1976, through a series of misunderstandings and a little tough luck, I shook two in a Lady Kenmore box under a bridge in North Kansas City, Missouri. And that morning dawned like no other morning had for, <coughs> excuse me, a long time. I shook two that morning, 
and I was as lucid as I had been in a long, long time. And I was at that point that perhaps a lot of you have been too. I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober. And for the first time in a long, long time, I wanted to get off the treadmill. I just wanted out. I wanted out of the squirrel cage that Creighton had created for himself. I wanted out of that position that I'd put myself in. I sure as hell didn't want to live in a Lady Kenmore box with a dirt floor in March in Kansas City, Missouri, under a bridge. My drink of choice was Aqua Velva by this time. I still can't see one of those ads on television without going, <laughs> So I was going to commit suicide that morning, for real this time. No notes, no nothing. I just wanted out. I didn't want to stop drinking, but I wanted to stop living the way I was living. I had 35 or 40 cents in my pocket. I was dressed in my wardrobe, literally dressed in my wardrobe. I was down to it. I uh, hadn't had a bath in so long that... Uh, when I got on that city bus to ride out to a garage where I knew a car was parked, I could have had any seat on that bus I wanted. If it had been summertime, the flies had been following me, I think. <clears throat> and I got on that city bus with that 35 or 40 cents, whatever I had. And I rode out to this friend's house, would be friends again. I broke into their garage, nobody was home. And I knew where the keys were to their automobile. And I found the keys, and I got the keys, and I put them in the ignition. And I found an old vacuum cleaner hose, and I hooked one end of the tailpipe and the other in the window. Hell, half of you could write the script yourself from now on. I got in that car, and I turned the ignition on. Now, listen to this. And nothing happened. Now, that's a bad day if you're trying to commit suicide, I'll tell you right there. <laughs> Here's what did happen. Out of the futility that I couldn't kill myself, I cried out something to the effect of, God, if you're, really, if you're really out there, for Christ's sake, do something, because I can't. And on page 63 of our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about exactly what I did. I surrendered. I flat surrendered. Didn't realize at the time, but I was tired of fighting the fight. I was tired of of trying to live the way I was living. And all of a sudden, a thought popped into my mind, have you tried AA? Well, hell, I thought I knew all about AA. You see, in 1950, I went to live with my dad, who'd been a bad drunk, double bad drunk, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he had just gotten sober in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to live with my dad, and we went to Saturday night meetings, which were open meetings. This is before Al-Anon or Alateen or Al-A-Dog or Al-A-Cat or ACA or that other stuff. And they called it the auxiliary in those days, and the kids would come, and like the crowd is here tonight, and the drunks would get up, and they'd tell their drunkologues. And I thought, I love drunkologues. Love them then, love them now. And these guys would get up. There weren't many women in AA at that time. And the guys would get up, and they'd say, and then I... I drank some bad stuff and went blind. Hell, the audience was hilarious. They thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever heard, you know. And some other guy said, and then I drank some Jake Lake and fell down the stairs and broke my neck. And they were on the floor there crying there laughing so hard. I thought, this is the weirdest bunch of people I've ever seen in my life. 
<coughs> but they had a heck of a sense of humor. But the big thing was, in, in those days, we had the meetings after the meetings, which are always the best meetings. Hell, if you came in a car here tonight, you've had the best meeting you're going to have. Where the, you know, you ride down here in a car where you can take the in, really in-depth inventories of, we don't gossip in A, but we share because we're very concerned about others. And you can really get those things talked about, you know, in the car. Really get those problems solved. But we used to meet in the homes and have the coffee and the cake. Well, that's what I knew about AA, which is nothing. So I broke into that house and I found a telephone number in the phone book and I called this little AA group down in North Kansas City, Missouri. And somebody was down there. Imagine that. And they said, uh, you know anything about AA? Oh, yeah, yeah. Real authority on AA. Well, come on, have you got wheels? I said, oh, sure, sure. So about 15 or 20 minutes later, I came out of another blackout, and I was driving a stolen car, dressed in my wardrobe, filthy dirty, had a suit of my name, and a thought came to me. I wonder if I'm bad enough to have to go to AA, you know. <laughs> Evidently, I thought I was because I went. And I got down to 1824 North Swift, and I walked in that door, and I walked up those steps and walked in the hall, knocked on the door. Anybody else ever done that? They said, come on in. And there he stood, this tall, skinny guy with the eye. There was something about those eyes. And he stuck out a hand and he says, Hi, I'm Jack. And he smiled at me. It's been a long time since anybody had smiled at Pendarvis. A long time. And those sparkling, laughing eyes of shining sobriety that we see and hear about in AA. It's not a fallacy, it's true. It is absolutely true. I had those old mucusy, drunk's eyes, watery. And I stuck out an old shaking, dirty hand, and I said, uh, I'm Creighton Pendarvis. He said, would you run that by just one more time? You know. <clears throat> I said, well, you can call me Captain. Because I wanted him to know immediately I'd been an airline captain. He could tell I was between engagements. And uh, <laughs> he said, well, I'll call you Penn. We sat down there, and Jack and I sat down there, and we talked that afternoon. I have no idea what we talked about in the early minutes of, of our conversation, except all of a sudden I was shaking, and I heard this loud and clear. Jack says, you look like you need a drink. And I thought, here's a sage, smartest guy I ever knew. And Jack went down to his car, and he pulled out a bottle that the old-timers used to carry in their trunks, and some of us still do, for guys named Creighton. He brought it back upstairs, and he gave me a pull off the jug, and that's the last drink I've had. March 1st, 1976. And all of a sudden, I smoothed out, just like you would. I smoothed out like the first time I ever had a drink. Now, I don't think it's really important to be a member of the fellowship to realize when you had, or remember when you had your first drink, but in my case, I do. I was eight years old, living in a little town of Humboldt, Kansas, being raised by my grandparents. My grandfather was a doctor. And there was a typhoid epidemic that summer. And my grandfather was going to give me a shot. But first of all, he had to get me off the chandelier. 
So he poured a little jelly glass full of homemade wine. He loved to make wine. He, he was a sick drinker four times a year, you know, real sick drinking. And, uh, but he loved to make wine. And he handed me this little jelly glass of wine, and I held it up, and it was amber in color, and I remember the consistency of it to this day. I remember the color. I put it to my lips, and I drank it down. And it got right down someplace along here, and it was like one of these little Japanese paper and wooden umbrellas, all folded up that they decorate cakes and drinks with. And it got right down here and went, boom! And it opened up. And it protected me from you. Now, why in the world did an eight-year-old child need protection from anybody? Beats the hell out of me. But you see, just like you, I was a square pig that could not fit into a round hole, no matter what I did. No matter what I did. And God knows I tried. I tried people-pleasing from when I came right out of the chute, I think. But all of a sudden, I smoothed out the first time I took a drink and the last time I took a drink. And I was kind of like, it filled up that hole in my gut. No, no matter whether you're wearing a designer gown, a $500 Brooks Brothers, or a t-shirt, the wind called on unless blows through your guts at exactly the same speed. All alone again. And I could do that in this size of a crowd. And so could you. That drink made me a part of that afternoon. And all of a sudden I talked to Jack and I was probably as honest as I had been in years and years and years. I looked up on the wall and I saw those steps, steps on one side, traditions on the other. And I saw that one word and I said, Jack, I don't know if I can make it. And what was that one word I saw? God. You bet. You've been there too, haven't you? And Jack says, don't worry about that word God. And I thought, how the hell did he know? You know. He says, don't worry about that. Well, I had a little necessary nap then on an old couch. Drunks take necessary naps at various and sundry places. Eight o'clock that night came. How it works was red. And I convulsed. Boom. Right on the floor. Now, that's bad on newcomers. I was laying there flopping, you know, around. And we had a lot of folks in that meeting that night that they called them golden slippers, in and out of the program a whole bunch of times. And they looked like a tree full of owls watching that guy flop up there. And they said, ooh, that really does happen, doesn't it? Yeah. We'd heard about things like that, but never saw a live one. And there I was, you know. Well, I can tell you from personal experience, it's better to be a watcher than a flopper any time, I'll tell you. Well, thank God there's a guy named Doc Newton in there that night. Doc came over and several of the members of the North Kansas City group carried me back to an old couch in the back of the uh, A hall. And I had, uh, I had an old pair of wool breeches, marine green wool breeches on, zippers rusted shut. And I had a, an old pair of yellow tennis shoes. They'd originally been white, but they were yellow for the same reason that the zippers rusted shut. So they put an old rubber sheet on this on this uh, couch and laid it down and, and laid the captain down so in case he wet his pants one more time, you know, that wouldn't bleed through in the couch. And the members of the Alcoholics Anonymous group of North Kansas City 
stayed with me all night long. Doc Newton went down, got his little black bag, came up and gave me a shot, of, some type of shot, to settle me down. Pulled out the paralyhide, and the members went over to the little kitchen and got the orange juice and the honey and the Coke syrup for the heaves. And they started sobering me up. Now, folks, that's a treatment center. I'm not throwing rocks at treatment centers. I don't have that right. But it just didn't cost me $10,000 to learn how to read a $5 book is all, you see. And the folks of that AA group stayed up with me all night long. They put cold, wet washcloths on my head. And most of that stuff came right back up in a little old tin pan that they held for me. And I thought, why, why are they doing this for me? If they really knew the real Creighton Pendarvis, I'd be out in the streets in the New York Minute. And I didn't realize at the time that they weren't doing it for me. They were doing it for themselves. They were doing it for themselves, viewing an old sick drunk that it was, was drinking for them. They didn't have to. And I'll never forget that. Well, the next day, they decide the captain needed a bath. Boy, I agreed with that. So they tar- started taking the old captain's clothes off, and they found out captains didn't want to wear underwear in those days, which is pretty easy to explain. Aqua Velva and Fruit of the Loom shorts went for about the same price, and Aqua Velva, hell, it always won, you know. So they took my clothes, and they took it down to a little washeteria around the corner. This is a true story. And they brought it back about an hour and a half. And they say, we got some good news and some bad news, you know. Said, now, those old wool britches kind of <laughs> shrunk up a little bit. Ah, zipper's unstuck. Hell of a deal. <laughs> the tennis shoes are white again. They kind of look like Aladdin's with the toes curled up there a little bit. And the shirt just evaporated. We don't know what the hell happened to it, but it's gone. And that's the way I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was ungrateful. I was terribly phony, and I was scared spitless. But the members of the Alcoholics Anonymous group smiled a lot and kept saying, it's, it's going to get better. If I heard that one more time, I was going to choke them, you know. And I'd look at these little slogans. Easy does it. First things first. Let go and let God. And the most dangerous sign in any AA hall, think, 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 you know. And I thought people that would hang signs like that would put salt and pepper shakers from the Ozarks on their mantelpiece over the fireplace, you know. But God love them. God love them. Well, that's how I came into AA. About two or three weeks later, I was afraid to go back to the Lady Kenmore box because it wasn't there, I thought, anymore. Your possessions are taken quickly. Uh, there's eviction notice I'm sure was on it and I hung around that old club and I lived in the, that back room and you showed me how to make coffee in a coffee pot and I cleaned up after the meetings and set up chairs and was belligerent and if there hadn't been a, a, a safe I would have helped myself to the collection I did anyway later on and about three or four weeks later there was a guy standing up at the podium he was uh, he was uglier than Russ you know and he stand up behind the podium, and he had those old Ben Franklin glasses down the end of his nose, about 108 years old. And uh, his, his hair was kind of like Russ's, you know, very high forehead. And he stand up there, and he, 
he had this great big blown-up mugshot of himself when he'd been throwing the slammer out in Hayes, Kansas for DWI. He was holding it up. He's holding it up like this. He says, there I am drunk, and here I am sober. And again, like Ross, he'll always look better drunk than he ever would sober. You know, so... Stand up there and making his pitch, and I was I was sitting on Wino Row, you know, the last row where all the newcomers sit back there, in the back of the room. We were taking in-depth inventories of those ahead of us, and all of a sudden he finishes his pitch, and the basket's being passed. And as I said, I thought it was more blessed to receive than give in those days, and I was helping myself to some of the money in the basket, and I felt this arm on mine that grabbed me. It was this old geezer. He says, "Boy." If you do that, I'm going to break your arm. Well, I've been caught, right? He says, by the way, I'm your new sponsor. <laughs> Damn near died right there. That wasn't my deal. Well, I found out it wasn't his deal either. They'd drawn straws for me before that meeting. He lost. And Ken Hall said became my sponsor. Thank guys. God for guys named Ken Hall said, because he guided me through the big book and the 12 steps, one step at a time. But it took me a while to pick up that one step at a time. About two or three weeks after Ken became my sponsor, I was setting up chairs for the evening meeting. The room was empty, just he and I. And I just finished mopping the floor. And I was sitting there in a chair, and he had his arm up on the back of my chair, and he says, Son, what step do you think you're on? And as, now listen to this, as honestly as I possibly could, and as honestly as I've ever been in my life, I looked up at those steps and I looked at Ken and I said, Ken, I'm having some trouble with number nine. I've been sober, I've been sober six weeks. Hell, right on track, right? Right on track. All of a sudden I looked and the old man's on the floor. I thought, he's having a heart attack. Laughing himself to death. <laughs> He gets up and he points that big old bony finger in my chest. And he says, boy, you're on one. And don't you forget it, you know. And it's at times like these that the newer members of Alcoholics Anonymous wish to Christ they had a car so they could crush their sponsors to death in the AA parking lot. <laughs> you know, right up against the wall, you old geezer. Well, thank God for old Ken. That's the way I came into AA. I told you something about how I got here, something about me. I'm a Kansas kid. As I said, I grew up in that very loving home. I, I was a prime candidate for AA. I grew up in a kind Christian home, you know, which makes us a primary candidate for AA later in life. But I never fit in. You know, I lived on Happy Island. Have most of my life. Happy Island, for us drunks, is simply this. We dig a moat around Happy Island. And it's a magic moat because we can contract it and expand it as we wish. Now, where are you going? You need to hear this. Go for me, too, will you? Let's see. I'm Creighton Pendarvis, and I'm an alcoholic. And this moat expands and contracts. And the magic part about it is we control the key to the drawbridge. And we can put that drawbridge down or bring it up at our command. Controllers. And living on Happy Island, I can control my destiny, I think. 
If I want to be alone, man, I can be alone. Spread that mother out, that moat a mile wide, and the drawbridge stays in the up position. But when the hormones start to flow or I become grandiose, I want to let that drawbridge down to let you tippy-toe across. But God help you if you jump in my stuff and try to see inside my facade. Because I, like you, have a bunch of raw meat in here. And I've covered it with this facade that you see on the outside. Never realizing that my insides are full of fear, trepidation, anger, anxiety, lust, all this other stuff. Because on the outside, I'm happy camper. I'm Captain Cloud, and I'm going to take you flying today. On the inside, I say, Jesus Christ, if I make it to noon, I'm going to be lucky. But on Happy Island, I can only let you across when my facade is full. But if you jump in my stuff and find out that my visceral in here, my red raw meat is exposed, what do I do? I kick you out across that island, draw up the drawbridge, and throw away the key forever and permanently expand the moat. And one more time, I'm all alone again. Hell of a way to live. Hell of a way to exist. Hell of a way to operate. But that's what I had to do. Until I discovered booze. And booze made that facade impenetrable. It made it thick. You couldn't come in unless I wanted you to. I didn't discover booze until I was in college. I'd gone, as I said, I'd gone to live with my father. I was not a good student, but I was a good football player. I footballed my way through high school. I footballed my way through college. Had no idea what I was going to do. I was rudderless. Had the emotions of a 12-year-old, the body of a 21-year-old, or 18, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old. I was picked up by a pro team, professional football team. Played two years of pro football. Really had not gotten deep into the sauce except on occasion. There was a military draft in those days, and I was going to be drafted, and I really didn't want to be drafted. So I picked up on an outfit called Marquette, and I was able to get into a, a fight school, Marine Cadets. And I went to fight school and became a pilot after a year of intense training. And all of a sudden, Semper Fi, Mac. And all of a sudden, we have a frog over here. You know. I uh, was putting on some gold wings and some gold bars, and I was an officer by act of Congress, and a pilot by the act of my training. And that night, I got into Rob Royce. Never got into him again. Got sick, drunk, and the morning drink became a, a daily activity for me from that time on. I was on my way to El Toro, California, <coughs> my first duty assignment, in a very heavily mortgaged 1954 Triumph. I was four years or five years old. I was hungover, and I thought, man, I'm a fighter. I'm a real fighter pilot now. I'm hungover, in debt, puking my guts out, and I found the morning drink. Warm beer. That's the way to live. I got out there in the West Coast, and I met and married a beautiful lady. We had a child, 
And all of a sudden, I realized what responsibility was. Now, I could fly an airplane 500 miles an hour, three feet off your wing, and be the most responsible guy you ever met in your life. I'd hang right in there, and I was good at it. And I'd land that aircraft, I'd raise the canopy, and I'd take off my oxygen mask and my helmet, get out of the cockpit, take my parachute off, hang them up, and go home to my wife and child. I didn't know how to act. Ever been there? I didn't know how to act. I didn't know what responsibility was of a family. A family scared me, full of trepidation and fear. How was I supposed to act? When you're married to a very emotionally stable lady, and you're 12 years old emotionally, it's a tough act to create. I was scared to death. I didn't know how to act around those people, so I did the, the thing that alcoholics are so good at. I played run, drink, run. And I ran overseas. And six weeks later, I was standing before my commanding officer's desk, and he was not a happy camper. We intuitively know these things. As I was standing in a rigid brace before his, and he looked up and he says, you're a bum. And I thought, the word's out. They know. Because you see in here, in this red raw meat, I had known I was a bum for a long, long time. I just didn't want you to find out. I didn't like the guy shaved. He says, you hadn't sent any money home to your wife. I've never known an officer whose wife is on Navy relief, but yours is. You're disgraced the uniform. Blah, 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 blah. Get out of my office. When I got out of that office, what's the first thing I did? I said, that bitch, how could she do this to me? The self-centered fear our big book talks about. Because I was already writing all four of those four horsemen it talks about in chapter 11, A Vision for You. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. Every one of them. I saddled up every morning. Coupled with those two good friends of mine that sat in the end of my bed every time I woke up in the morning. Called guilt and remorse. And they'd say, good morning, Cretan, and reach in my gut and grab me just like that. But the booze had put the fire out. And I couldn't stand the embarrassment to my arrogance and pomposity and my ego that she had caused. She had caused? <laughs> you see, I was carrying enough guilt for 12 people. I didn't need any more guilt. But I knew by this time how to put the fire out and be somebody. And I'd taxi down to that bar and I'd sit down at that bar. And I'd raise that ever clear martini up and look in that back mirror behind that bar. You good-looking son of a bitch, don't you ever die. And that second ever clear martini would slide down, and I'd wink at that guy. And all of a sudden, that black wavy hair would come in. Hell, when I had hair, I didn't have black wavy hair. You know? I'd raise that arm up, and it was an arm of steel. And I was a lover and a killer. Well, I'd been impotent for about nine months, weighed 225 pounds, couldn't lick my lips, had about 75 cents worth of chili running right down the front of me here. And I'd turn and look at some lovely sitting a couple of stools down. And I would say, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Now, the translation, that's drunk talk for high. I fly jets. Been there, haven't you? Yeah. Well, they'll move about 12 stools down from you when you do that, except once in a while, every once in a while, there'd be one, usually she, this is before pantyhose, this is back in when they, when you girls had the, the garter belts on, and usually the one I'd pick on was the one that had one of these garter things trailing out the back end, and, and she'd sit there and go, <laughs> and off into a meaningful relationship we would go. You see, alcoholics really don't fall in love a lot, but we come in heat on a regular basis there, you know. Just Captain Wonderful. And I dream another dream and fall off another bar stool and it's a hell of a way to live. That lady divorced me, thank God. Didn't take me long. I found a another Alanon candidate. And God love her. She was a wonderful, wonderful gal. Why do, why do us male drunks find such great gals? I, I, we do. And I lied to this one, and she married me. When we had another child. But you see, I had done nothing to change Creighton. I was doing the same thing, expecting different results, and it doesn't happen. I was spending money I didn't have, trying to please people I didn't even like, buying things nobody wanted. And nothing changed. Back overseas I went. This time there was a shooting war going on. And that day came that I knew would come, and I dreaded it. You see, I was walking out to my aircraft one morning. I was still drunk from the night before. I used to say I was hungover. Hell, I was still drunk. I was walking out to that aircraft, and I was going out in the mission with the best friend I ever had in my life. Bar none. Terry's a great guy. Super pilot. Great family man. And I was lead. I was in a blackout. I climbed up inside that aircraft and I had one foot on the ladder and the other foot on the seat. I just swung my parachute into the seat and I came out of that blackout and I couldn't figure out if I was going out on a mission or coming back from one. It's a bad place to be. Fifteen or twenty minutes later, I came out of another blackout, came conscious again. I was flying at a very high rate of airspeed, very low altitude, both of which I was supposed to be. And I came to, and I, that stark, raving fear set in, and I gulped, and I was lost, which I wasn't supposed to be. I looked back, and there was Terry tucked in just exactly where he was supposed to be. And moments later, we picked up some ground fire. I choose to think that's what it was. It caused me to do something that I had been taught never, ever to do. I turned into my wingman. I killed him. Just like that. Then I started playing that game for real. You played it too, perhaps. Why me, God? Why did Terry die and I live? You see, God, I'm no good. I'm rotten. Terry's a great guy. And I was in those hospitals, and I, by this time I'd look in that, in that mirror, shaving myself, and I played that game of black magic. Because, you see, I would look in my, in, in, into my eyes, unfortunately, and the wise man was right. The, wind, the eyes are the windows to the soul. 
Yet my soul was as black as night. And I hated me. And I've talked to some of you gals. You've told me the same thing. Yes, Creighton. When we put that mascara on, we're looking into eyes that we hate. And the Alanons the same way. It's a hell of a way to live. Well, how do you put the fire out? We know, don't we? Because I could drink that booze and that fear and that remorse and that guilt and that hate and that shame. And then inequity would go away for a while. But the periods, the periods that they went away would get less and less and less and less. I got out of that hospital and I told, I told that wonderful, wonderful gal that I was married to, my second wife, Honey, it's going to be different this time. You see, I'm turning over new leaf number 863. It's going to be different this time. And she desperately wanted to believe me, and she did. And we went to Kansas City, and I was with a fine airline. Had a fine airline job. We laid on our feet by the grace of God, I think. And I did. I wanted to turn over that new leaf. I wanted to be somebody in the community. You see, it was important for me to build that facade up some more. So I didn't have to think about the things I had done. So I joined the JCs and I sold Christmas trees and I did this and we bought this little house in this nice neighborhood and I built a, a white picket fence. That's not true. I dug the holes for a white picket fence and then would trip over them when I mowed the yards and got to get that fence up one of these days, you know. But drunks are busy people. Busy, busy, busy. And I never could get that fence finished. In July of 1968, I was voted Young Man of the Year by the J.C.'s of Kansas City. At Christmas time that same year, I was in the insane asylum, the state insane asylum. You see, by this time I had become, I was sitting in trees, naked, revealing my shortcomings, you know. <clears throat> Hi, lady, want a drink? <laughs> Fall out of the tree. Well, this was unbecoming behavior in the neighborhood I lived in, you know, very short shrift neighborhood. But it had caused so much embarrassment to that wife of mine that she left me, thank God, and I was in the state lockup, the real padded cell. And my drinking buddy, who happened to be the chief pilot there in Kansas City, came up and he says, boy, you're in a mess. <laughs> you ought to be in this side. He says, if the, if the newspapers ever get a hold of this, uh, it'd be bad for ticket sales. Allowed that was possible. Airline captain in the jitter joint. So they got me out of there. I'd worn out my welcome in Kansas City and became, by this time I was senior enough to become an international pilot. So I drank with a plum all over the world. I threw up with a plum all over the world. That's what I really did. How was Hong Kong? Oh, great bar. They'll build you a suit while you're sitting right there at the bar. You know, hell of a deal. How was Johannesburg? Great bar. How was Paris? Great bar. How's Lima, Peru? Bad jail? Great bar. Yeah. My sponsor said it's very natural. I was doing that thing very natural to us. Fishermen fish, golfers golf, and drunks drink. And that's what I was doing all over the world. Until it finally caught up with me. I never had a DWI in a car. I did in a 727, which is really bad for career development, I'll tell you. They fired me. Hell, they should have fired me. They should have fired me. And then became the downward spiral. I was fired in January 1974. 
from January 1974 until March the 1st of 1976, a lot of things happened to me that are really none of your business, as a matter of fact. But this is not a fifth step. But suffice it to say that I got in trouble where there's trouble. And I got sicker of me, and I got sicker of the illness until that fateful day. What's happened today to change all that? I was with my sponsor in Kansas City. I'd been sober about three months. And I was working. I did have a job. I was a China technician, dishwasher to some. And we were riding around one day. And you know how we are. I looked out, and all of a sudden I thought I recognized that vehicle over there. And I said, Ken, it's my car. There's my car. It was a 1965 Dodge Dart. Didn't have any wheels on it. I ran over, and sure enough, it was my car, my car. I found my car. It was parked on cinder blocks next to this old dipsy dumpster. And sure enough, it was my car. So I saved up some money, and I got wheels for that car, and I got an engine, and all of a sudden I had something to get around in. I wanted to get out of that dishwashing job, and I said, Ken, I'm, I'm much too intelligent to, to stay here and be a China technician, dishwasher. He says, well, why don't you just fool them and just stay here, you know, for a while longer. But the opportunities came, and, and I was able to get a little job with a food brokerage house, and I think this was an act of God, because part of my territory was a place called Conception, Missouri, where a a Benedictine Abbey was located. And I was uh, peddling food up there and padding the order, of course. This is before I got on it. And uh, one day, it was the birds were chirping. It was a beautiful spring day, and, and the flowers were blooming. And it was in early May. And I said to Ken, or I said to uh, Brother John, who was uh, uh, one of the brothers in charge of the kitchen, I said, Brother John, what's all the festivity day? And he says, well, it's the 200th anniversary of the Abbey. He says, why don't you go over and take a look at our abbey? Well, I'm not big on abbey. But all of a sudden, something, something happened to me. And I walked over there, and I walked in this abbey, and it was almost as high as, as this building is here. It was dark, and it was cool. And almost as if on cue, I walked into that abbey, and I walked in those doors, and the Gregorian chants from the cloisters started. Well, I'm not big on Gregorian chants either. But something happened to me. I fell to my knees in a pew, and I cried. I wasn't big on crying until that time either. Myself, God is alive and well, and God does understand me, and God must be in my life or I sure as hell wouldn't be here. And that started this spiritual awakening that we hear so much about. Did I immediately start walking on water and glowing in the dark? Nah, still don't. Never will. But what happened to me is I became aware of my dishonesty. And it was more painful to me to be dishonest than it was to be honest. And it is my firm conviction that we who slowly embrace the program of Alcoholics Anonymous it becomes more painful for us to do certain things that are against our will and our nature than it is not to do them. Just as simple as that. I had lost that license to fly airplanes ever again. In fact, the license had said, forever will you stay away from airplanes. 
And then something happened. Ken one day said, I want you to go down to Oklahoma City and I want you to talk to that guy down there in the FAA, some doctor down there. I don't know. I said, Ken, you don't understand. They never want me to go near an airplane again. And I'm sure as hell not going down to the FAA. That's like going with gasoline all over your body, going next to a flame. I ain't going to do it. And he says, go. Well, as an obedient, beat-down pigeon, I went. I got down to this office, and this lady, the secretary, says, uh, Oh, Creighton. I thought, how the hell does she know my name? Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Davis will see you in a minute. Never met the man before. I walked into his office. He was smoking the same brand of cigar Ken did, sitting behind his desk, and he says, what can I do for you, boy? I thought something was familiar there. And all of a sudden, I sat down. Before I knew it, I was telling Ken or telling uh, Audie all about Creighton. And before I'd gone down there, I'd asked Ken, I said, what the hell am I going to tell this guy? He says, tell him the truth for the first time in your life. So I did. I was about five minutes into my spiel about Creighton, as honestly as I could possibly be. And he got something out of his pocket. And he threw it up on the desk. Like that. And I picked it up. And it said, to thine own self be true. There are two X's on it. I said, you know Halstead. He says, hell, he's my old sponsor. I walked out of that office with a license to fly airplanes that afternoon. Only through the miracle of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those things aren't supposed to happen. But hell, you heard the promises. They do happen. They do happen with very little effort on our part, or at least that's been my experience. Except I try to be a little more honest than I used to be, and I don't steal near as much. That went right over your head, didn't it? I went to Dallas, Texas, became very active in AA. I met a beautiful, beautiful blonde-haired lady. We went together for about nine months. We were married. That was almost 15 years ago. Her name is Wally. Her real name is Dion, but her nickname is Wally. She's one of the most delightful people you ever met, isn't she? Again, I don't know how we find these gals, but she's a wonderful. She's the she's the light of my life. She's the most wonderful person I've ever known. Now, a lot of people say, "Hey, marriages don't work." In a pig's eye, hey, marriages work very well if you work the marriage. If you work the marriage. Now, if you're about uh, 35, 40, 45 years old, growing on 11, both of you, yeah, you're right. You're going to have to go through puberty together. But she was much more emotionally stable than I was. She had four children by a previous marriage to a drunk. Imagine that. And that drunk was now sober in AA. And they'd been divorced for several years. And that drunk came to the wedding. Only in AA. He was my husband-in-law is what, what uh, he was. <laughs> Great guy. And he cried with everybody else. But those four kids now, let me tell you what they said. Before the wedding, it's, it's alleged that they said, what an order. We can't go through with it. But they did. 
They did. And they taught me how to be a man. They taught me about responsibility of family. They taught me a lot of things. And I'm also grateful. Now, those two daughters of mine. The oldest daughter I had not seen in 17 years. And the ninth step of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that we sweep, don't miss this, it says we sweep off our side of the street. And that was beat into me by my Dallas sponsor, a guy by the name of David A. that you may know. He's about that tall and meaner than a snake. Rotten me. Dirty Dave A. Dr. Dirty Dave A. And he says, Creighton, you're sweeping off your side of the street. Now go write this letter to this daughter because it's eating you alive. And it was. It was eating my lunch. So I wrote this letter to my daughter that I hadn't seen in 17 years. So I waited for the response. Our egos, you know. Well, I've done my part. No letter. And I'd call to Dave and I'd whimper and cry, well, I haven't got any answer. He says, have you had a drink today, boy? Of course not. Are you breathing in and out? Yes. Well, then anything more than that, you're either oversexed or just plain crazy. Click and hang up, you know. Resentments form that way very easily because we're very sensitive people. Finally, the day came and I did get a response to that letter. The girly handwriting on the envelope and I opened it and it said, Dear Daddy, I love you. From a daughter I hadn't seen in 17 long years. And she said, I understand about your alcoholism. And she wanted to see me. And I'd like to tell you that we picked up where we left off and nothing was changed. And that's not true. There had been too much water over that dam. But we're good friends. And she loves me and I love her. And we correspond on a normal basis. And she's doing very well. My younger daughter, Tracy, I shared with some of you that she had anorexia and we went through that. Let me share this for the Alanons. I thought anybody that had anorexia in my family has got to be kidding. But that shows what I knew. Because you see that disease is so akin to alcoholism it isn't even funny. And all of a sudden I came back from a treatment modality that she was in full of anger at myself and God and everybody else. And who did I turn to? I didn't turn to the drunks. I turned to the Alanons. I turned to Gracie, David's wife. Another guy, a gal by the name of Elsa. And I talked to those wonderful, wonderful two ladies and the rest of the Alanons. And I found out, they said, Creighton, you've got to release with tough love. And I thought, release with love, release with love, release with love. And they taught me it's a million miles from my head to my heart. And I started going to some Alamon meetings. I learned early on from Elsa. She said, Creighton, how do you introduce yourself when you go to an Alamon meeting? I said, well, Creighton Pindar is an alcoholic. She said, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. She said, you see, that's our meeting. You're a guest there if you say that. And there may be some new gal in there or new guy that hates drunks worse than they hate fire. And they're not going to open up if you say, I'm an alcoholic. Don't, don't forget that, folks, to the drunks. If you ever go in an Al-Anon meeting, go as an Al-Anon or a visitor or what else, whatever. That's their meeting. I love the Al-Anons. God, you saved my lunch.
You taught me about this third step. That's what you did. You taught me how to read it in the 12 and 12. You taught me the prayer. God, I offer myself to Thee to do with me and build with me as Thy wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Been my problem all my life. Bondage of self. I was my own worst enemy. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of Thy power, Thy love, and Thy way of life. May I do Thy will always. It's a beautiful prayer. And it got me out of me long enough to realize that I ain't such a bad guy after all. I suit up and show up. I try to work my program as best I can. I listen to my sponsor. I'm 17 years sober. I've had a lot of triumphs in my life. I've had some tragedies. I lost my mother two weeks ago. But you see, I was able to spend 17 sober years with that woman who I said deserted me as a kid. Hell, she didn't desert me. She was married to a bad drunk and made a life for for herself by traveling and sending money to support me. But I didn't see it that way. Victim. <laughs> it's a big word these days. Yeah. Through a series of misunderstandings and a little tough luck. But I'm standing here tonight so damn grateful I don't know I don't know how to act. Because you see, if it hadn't been for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have missed all this. I would have missed those grandkids I have now. Four one brand spanking new one. Born three days ago. And my Jenny. My Jenny's the light of my life. I want to say this, and I, I don't, it's not braggadocious. It really isn't braggadocious. But there may be somebody here tonight that's sitting out there that's having a tough time, that doesn't ever think they'll ever amount to anything. You're looking at a guy that 17 years ago this month, Lived in the Lady Kenmore box. A year ago, I retired as the vice president of Northwest Airlines. It happens. Not on our timetable, necessarily, but it happens. Don't get so down on yourself that you give up. Let me share this with you. Big Butter and Eggman stand up here at a conference. Travel great distances to come here. Let me tell you what happened a month ago to this guy. I was so low that I wondered if it was all worthwhile. My mother was dying of cancer. My wife was with her in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My business had, had gone sour. My, the golden parachute that my company had given me when we retired was being taken away from us because of business problems. I had a horrible, horrible cold. I'm not over it yet. But most of all, what came back in my life? I forgot to thank God in the mornings. And I got into me. And I stayed in bed in the fetal position for two or three days. Ever been there? You bet you have. Hey, it can happen to anybody. About a month ago, five weeks ago, on a Friday night, I was by myself in Lilydale, Minnesota, high atop the bluff overlooking the Minnesota River with about three feet of damn snow outside, colder than hell. 
and I was alone. You talk about loneliness that set in. And finally I thought, if I, I can't stand anymore. Who did I reach out to? A bottle? No. I reached out to a guy in AA by the name of Bob B. I called Bob and I said, Bob, I'm, I think I'm about to die. He was there in about five minutes because he understood. Bob's got 25 years of sobriety. I spent the night with he and his lovely wife, Linda. And he sat at the end of my bed that night, or beside my bed, and held my hand. And we said that third step prayer. And then he said a little prayer extemporaneously. And I got the first beautiful night's sleep that I've had in a long time. How did I get that? Through the grace of a loving God, through a member of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I was finally, I hurt so bad, I was willing to get off my big fat duff and do something about it and get out of the depression I was in. Bill Wilson suffered depression for seven years. And the melancholy that he suffered was, why am I in this shape and people that I sponsored? Hell, I started this outfit, and they're doing so much better than I am. Our egos, folks. Our egos are something else, aren't they? Wow. My mother died two weeks ago. It's a blessed... It was a blessed event that God took her. My wife and I, since that five weeks ago, have made some decisions, <clears throat> some radical decisions. We're moving to Tulsa to live in my mother's house. What's the first thing we did in Tulsa? We found the strong. We found an AA group that's stronger than six acres of garlic. That's strong. And we got in the program. Because just like turning to a whiskey bottle, I turned to AA for help today. I turned to a God of my understanding. I've stopped praying really any give me prayers. Give me this, God. Give me that. Give me the other. Boy, did he give me some stuff, I'll tell you. I don't think God paid much attention to those prayers of, of, of give me this, give me that. Today I pray, pray more prayers of thanks and acceptance. I thank God for my A marriage to Wally and the utter joy it's brought me. I pray, I pray prayers of thanks for my grandkids, the ones that put peanut butter in my slippers. And call me Penny. Don't you call me Penny. I thank God for my business, that I still have a business in these hard times. I'm grateful that it's not flourishing, but I still have it. I thank God that I'm able to get up in the morning and pay my bills. I thank God for my restored relationship with my mother before she died. I thank God for the love and respect of my kids who used to spit in my face. Most of all, God, I thank you so much for never having forgotten my name. Thanks a lot, Marietta. God bless. Good night.